Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. We've got a busy day here on NPR at 9.30. We're going to go to NPR's special coverage of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg lying in repose at the Supreme Court. So we only have half the time that we would normally have here on Detroit Today. Uh, You're going to want to stay tuned to that coverage. And of course, there will be coverage throughout the week of her lying in repose in the state, in the Capitol uh, in Washington, uh, and then her funeral later this week. But first today, on Monday, I lamented on this show the craven political shenanigans that Republicans are now indulging to really quickly replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. And I noted that the power that they're wielding in both the executive branch and in the legislative branch in the Senate is derived from a minority of voters and Americans. We are now and have been for a while in a state of minority rule in America. Republicans constantly and pretty consistently game our democratic system to hold on to power, no matter the cost, even though most supporters don't don't support them. Most voters don't support them. They have become masters at one thing and one thing only, exploiting the quirks of our Constitution and our laws to keep and wield power. Think about it this way. Since 1988, when George Herbert Walker Bush won the presidency, the Republican Party has only won one other popular contest for the presidency. That was in 2004 when George H.W. Bush was reelected. That's 32 years and winning one presidential election. And yet, if Donald Trump is successful in getting his nominee to the Supreme Court to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg confirmed, a majority of the Supreme Court will have been confirmed by presidents who got the office by not winning the popular vote. I'm not the only one who's noted this dynamic in the last few days. There has been a lot of chatter on social media about it. I've read some really good pieces about it. And one of them was written on Monday by the Washington Post's Philip Bump, who said, uh, who wrote that the Supreme Court fight highlights this new political reality, America under minority rule. But he writes, it might simply be a last gasp for a party that is running out of ways to keep control, even though a majority of voters don't support it. Philip Bump joins me now to talk about it. Philip, welcome back to Detroit Thanks Today. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks. So uh, you, as I said, wrote Monday that this party has repeatedly failed to win a majority of the vote in the presidential contest, right. relying instead on the Electoral College to win the White House. It keeps winning a majority in the Senate by taking seats in states that make up way less than a majority uh, of the population. Talk about what this means for our politics uh, and talk about how uh, talk about how this is uh, how this looks to uh, the constitutional system that we have. Well, I think one of the things that's important to realize is that the reason this is particularly problematic in the moment is because the country is as polarized as it is. 
uh, you know, we have uh, large groups, let's say 30 to 40 percent, who are fervently supportive of President Trump and, and Republicans. Uh, you know, let's say an equivalent number, although it's actually more, who are, you know, who don't like President Trump and who support Democrats. And there is this tension between these two groups that, that basically does divide the United States pretty much down the middle, at least in terms of the people who actually come out and vote. And that is really exacerbating this discrepancy between the vote and the power that's wielded. Mm -hmm. So while it has in the past often been the case that there is a divergence between the population of the country and how they're represented in the Senate, it has, over the course of the past century, we, uh, for the first time, have for five years in a row, the Democrats have been in the minority in the Senate, even though their senators represent a majority of the population. That's unusual. And it happens at a time when we're already at each other's throats. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these provisions, the makeup of the Senate, for instance, uh, the Electoral College, uh, apportionment, uh, a lot of these things, when the founders were creating the republic, were intentional ways of preventing majoritarian authority from running roughshod over minority interests. Uh, and in some cases, that wasn't uh, a noble instinct. Uh, in some cases, they were trying to protect uh, minority populations that were doing things that, that weren't, weren't, uh, weren't good things. So, for instance, uh, uh, slaveholders in slaveholding states uh, were the beneficiaries of some of those provisions. But, but over the, the lifetime of the republic, uh, these provisions have, have served more often, I think, to balance uh, power in in our country and to make sure that no one party uh, gets too much uh, control over everything, and and so that uh, the, the the rights of political uh, minority interests, the rights of uh, cultural and demographic minorities, are somehow protected by by these provisions. This is the opposite of that. This is a, a political minority that has has kind of exploited these provisions in order to keep power, even though it's not in the majority. But, but I wonder what you make of, uh, of the idea of getting rid of those provisions or changing them fundamentally, uh, and whether that is uh, courting another kind of danger, which is majoritarian will that is unchecked uh, by, by uh, checks and balances in the system. I think fundamentally one of the shifts that we've seen is away from this sense that there ought to be consensus. Um, you know, the, the House was established. Every two years there would be these elections. It was established to have a lot of turnover and a lot of energy and to capture the will of what America was doing in a given moment. The Senate was really built to be a check on the House, to be a longer-term institution where only a third of the uh, body could be replaced in any given two-year cycle. Uh, and to to really be sort of a, a a a break mechanism on what's happening. One of the challenges that we're seeing is that the Senate, as that body which was intended to be deliberative and to only use things um, uh, like uh, you know cloture votes only in the case of ex extreme instances, instead of having it be sort of a default, you need 60 votes to pass anything position. The nature of the Senate has also changed. You know, whether or not there is a path to remedying that, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to say. 
but it certainly is the case that the system was predicated on a level of goodwill that I think hasn't existed for a while, preceding President Trump. But I think President Trump obviously is exacerbating a lot of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Philip Bump, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Uh, we're talking about the minority status that the GOP holds uh, in terms of popularity in most of the country uh, at this point, and the fact that despite that minority status, the GOP controls so much uh, of our national government. Uh, the the contrast there is on display in the argument over whether uh, the GOP should get to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Uh, but it also uh, hi- is highlighted in lots of the arguments that we're having right now about the way things should be going in our country. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us if you believe we're living in a system Uh, that is under minority rule at this point? And do you think it's time to do something that would change that? Should we abolish some of the structures that make that possible? Uh, And if Joe Biden is elected and the Democrats win the Senate, uh, should they take extreme measures to restore some balance to to the system of government that we have? Uh, And if they do that, does that court uh, some other kinds of problems in the future? As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, try to work them into the conversation. Uh, Philip, before we get to listeners, uh, you, you write that this might be a last gasp for the Republican Party. Uh, tell me what you mean by that. I mean, one of the fundamental things that's driving this is the fact that the Republican Party continues to be a heavily uh, white institution, uh, that it is currently less diverse than the Democratic Party was in 1996. It is mostly a, uh, a party which is not only heavily white, but also has a large base of people who feel as though whites are under uh, are facing oppression. Uh, there has been repeated polling suggesting that Trump supporters in particular feel as though whites are one of the, if not the most discriminated against group in the United States. The challenge with that as a party is that it means they're also very heavily reliant upon votes from white people, and as whites make up a smaller portion of the electorate, uh, that becomes problematic. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing the party really having a lot of success in places that are heavily white. Obviously, this is not all contingent entirely upon race, uh, but it is, however, the case that they're being much more successful generally in places uh, where the population is more heavily white, the upper Midwest, for example, as compared to Arizona and Texas and Georgia, which are starting to trend more blue. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is the dynamic that's playing out, and we may simply be at an inflection point. As the population, as the demographics in the United States tend away from being more homogeneously white, that over the long term may not be tenable for the Republican Party. And we saw after 2012, when Mitt Romney lost the presidential race, the party sat down and said, hey, what are we going to do moving forward? And one of the things they said is we need to be better about appealing to people who are not white. And they put together this document, which basically made that case. Mm-hmm. And of course, what happened is President Trump came in 2016 and very heavily emphasized this sense that whites were facing discrimination and whites were an oppressed population. And that was why he both won the primary 
and was able to parlay that into victory in November. So basically, 2012, the Republican Party recognized this is a problem. 2016, their candidate then, you know, quintupled down on the issue and really made the party itself have to use that issue of race tacitly, not necessarily always explicitly, as a, a way to gain power. But it's not clear that over the long term that's something that will continue to work. It's sustainable, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about minority rule here in the United States. Um, we're going to hear from you, Billy in Detroit, Adam and Taylor, Matthew in Flat Rock. We'll see what's on your minds when we come back. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Philip Bump national political correspondent for the Washington Post about the power that the GOP wields at the national level here in the United States and the fact that that power derives from a minority of voters, both in the executive branch and in the legislative branch, the two branches that will work together over the next few weeks if they choose to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Is that kind of minority rule Okay, or should we have a different kind of system? Give us a call. Let us know what you think. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Lewis in Detroit. Lewis, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, good talking to you. So my comment was we've been talking about this minority rule, and uh, I've had this argument with, uh, Republican relatives and neighbors, and it's um, maybe it's a comment and a question at the same time because they keep on talking about a mob rule and how the Democrats, you know, becoming a mob are trying to rule everything. And and I'm a Democrat all around, but at the same time, when I see the countryside and certain needs of the countryside that are not being met, even though they're a minority, they're out there. You know, they they are in a way a majority. So um, maybe a comment um, from you guys about that would be would be great. So, so Luis, I, I want to make sure I understand what what you're what you're saying here. You're saying that that are that you're worried that Democrats uh, aren't taking into account enough of rural America. Yeah, exactly. And and when I talk about minority rule, mm-hmm. um, I I talk about maybe. Uh, the opposite end of the spectrum is if I talk to a Republican and I say, look, uh, you have won zero precedents for 10 or 15 years. And then they tell me, well, based on the Electoral College, it's not mob rule. We're not a country that is ruled by the mob, by right. a mob rule. Right. We're a country that has a, a check and balance in place, basically. Yeah. Luis, I, I appreciate uh, the call uh, and the thoughts there. Uh, Philip Bump, I'll, I'll let you respond. Sure. So one of the better arguments, I think, for the existence of the Senate as it is and the Electoral College as it is, is that the United States is a very geographically diverse area, Mm -hmm. right? And so there aren't a lot of people that live in Wyoming and Montana. And, you know, if you are a 
Montanan, for example, uh, you, there needs to be some reason for you to feel like it's worth participating in the American experiment, right? And so the Senate actually gives them that ability to do so. You know, obviously they only have one member of the House that gets drowned out in, in House votes, but those senators become pretty important. And that was sort of the uh, one of the arguments is that helped a young America maintain its uh, uh, cohesiveness simply by virtue of the fact that recognizing that not everywhere was going to be densely populated, there was still a reason for people to participate in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is a well-taken point. That said, saying that the majority rule is mob rule is simply something you say if you're not in the majority, right? <laughs> it, you know, the, the, the point of democracy is that voters weigh in on what it is they want to see. That necessarily, uh, it, generally speaking, is a representation of the majority. One of the challenges that we have now, too, is also something that's exacerbated by the relative diversity of the Democratic Party and non-diversity of the Republican Party, which is that the Democratic Party needs to incorporate a lot of ideas and consideration of things that the Republican Party doesn't. The Republican Party can have a very cohesive platform nationally that addresses the needs of rural whites as well as other people because it is a primarily non-diverse party. It doesn't have a lot of different voices that are competing for what it should stand for and what it should focus on. And so when you hear complaints from people in rural states, for example, the Democratic Party doesn't meet my needs, well, that's not exactly the case. What it is is the Democratic Party is focused on a lot of different needs, whereas the Republican Party is very narrowly tailored to a very specific demographic group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would uh, I would add to that is, uh, Louis, you know, the idea of majority being mob rule, I, I always challenge people to show me other democracies uh, and other democratic institutions where a minority of uh, the population gets to decide what happens to, to everyone else. I mean, it, 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 there's an inconsistency there. That I think uh, is is somewhat problematic. It was not always uh, anticipated by the founders when uh, they were creating the system. Uh, they also didn't anticipate, I think, the ways in which parties, which they called factions, uh, would change the check and balance system. The Senate right now is not any sort of check on the president because they are of the same party. They work in concert, and so that that kind of bumps up against uh, some of the things that uh, that we're expected to see out of those institutions. Lewis, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, let's go to Matthew in Detroit. Matthew, welcome to the show. Uh, hi. How hey, are you doing? Good. Um, my, uh, you know, kind of, I'm a, both Democrat and liberal, um, and, you know, I, I do get frustrated with the system, but I also do think there's, it, it does work to a degree, and kind of bouncing off of Lewis's uh, what he said, you know, it's more than just minority versus, you know, the, the farmers. You know, regionally, the United States is very diverse. And so what each state and area requires is going to be very different. And I think one thing that helps with this kind of system is that it prevents, you know, uh, like the city populations from basically overarching federal laws and policies that may not apply well in more rural or, you know, vastly different uh areas of the country. And so I think, you know, really the idea is to help allow the states to then, you know, do implement the laws and such that are required for their people and that area. Though it can be frustrating because there are times, you know, like slavery, like was mentioned earlier, you know, where they're doing things that, you know, are not good. Yeah. Well, Um, but Matthew, also, don't you worry, though, that that allowing a minority population, even though it may be rural, to have control, even though it's not the majority, 
then subjects people who live in cities to that that impulse and that they aren't served. Yes. No, I mean, it does kind of go both ways and it can be a little frustrating because now you're not able to. But then I guess is it the state then that should be taking up, you know, the policies and such to, yeah. um, um, yeah. to be able to uh, address those needs. But, you know, but now as, as we get bigger as a country and, you know, more integrated, it is more of a federal thing. So I can see, well, maybe the system is getting a little old, but, you know, I, <laughs> you I think, think it, it works. Does people. Yeah. Yeah, Matthew, yeah, for now. Matthew I, I appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, Philip, uh, respond to what uh, Matthew's saying there. I've got about two minutes left, by the way. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's generally right. But again, I think this goes back to fundamentally the American experiment was supposed to be about compromise and figuring out how to meet everyone's needs, right? So it is not necessarily the case that one party or the other, or one group or the other, uh, is necessarily trying to exclude particular thoughts for consideration. It was to have those folks have a seat at the table and say, hey, what about the issues of rural America? Hey, what about the needs of farmers? And to be able to have that be part of the discussion. Yeah. That, the thing, that the system has broken down more broadly in terms of incorporating lots of considerations and a broad range of voices, that's a bigger problem. And I don't necessarily think that the, the answer to that is making sure that, you know, Montana has as many senators as does California. Right. Okay. Philip Bump, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Always great to have you here. Thanks very much. You bet. Thanks. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Stay tuned for special coverage from NPR. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg lying in repose at the Supreme Court. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Matthew Iglesias, co-founder of Vox, about his new book, which argues that in order for the United States to remain a global power, we need massive population growth. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.